Welcome to the Humans of Hospitality podcast with me, Mark Cribb. Now, there is a notable change in the air as the 4th of July approaches. Some operators are gung-ho and opening everything on day one, some are at least waiting until the Monday rather than the Saturday, and some are staggering openings over a couple of months, calmly learning as they go. Personally, with all of my venues near the beach in a tourism town, I'm going for it and I'm opening them all on the 4th and seeing what we can salvage from the 2020 summer. But we're going to need to be agile. So far, demand is decent, but far from overwhelming. We're filling the latter part of the weeks, but Monday and Tuesday that before we may have just carried from the profit-making days are not looking like they are worth opening for. So we'll start steady, but really hope to be up to full power for at least the six weeks of the normal school holidays. I will keep you posted as to how things develop. It's hard to fathom such a short season, but we'll stay agile, learn every day, and I will share with you any interesting observations. For now, though, I have two more episodes recorded in the midst of lockdown before we start to shift to chatting to people getting the doors open. Today, I'm chatting to a true giant of the industry, David Sims, the culinary director at Restaurant Associates. Now, whilst your average human, Restaurant Associates is not particularly a consumer-facing brand, you will certainly know many of the venues that David and his team operate. From Somerset House to Edinburgh Zoo to Michelin-starred restaurants like Jason Atherton's City Social and Michel Roux's Parliament Square. I chat about David's history in the podcast, so I'm not going to list it here, but fundamentally just be reassured that I was really, really excited to get to chat to David because I knew the diversity and depth of his experience across the hospitality sector, and I was right. He was an exceptional guest and really well informed about a wide variety of subjects, so you are in for a treat. We touch on things like chef development and training, the changes in kitchen culture, both positive and negative, and how to get the very best out of a brigade. David has some great advice about the complexity of reopening the doors, why to keep the offering simple, and some of the operational considerations of having less people to do tasks. That leads us on to the impact of supply and the need to be clever and efficient to stand any chance of making a post-COVID profit. David has some great thoughts on sustainability and the supply chain and our obligation as an industry to help to educate but not to lecture the consumer on food, where it comes from and its environmental impact. We may even start a joint campaign to make eating strawberries in December a criminal offence. After a roller coaster of a chat with many highs and lows, we try to end positively around the nature of such a creative sector and where it may end up on the other side of the pandemic. Now, I hope you enjoy the conversation. And remember, before you do go, if you can support the podcast by heading over to the humansofhospitality.co.uk website and clicking on the big Patreon button, your support to keep this free podcast being produced would be exceptional. I promise to only spend the cash on the best kit and the best guests and represent an industry and of incredible humans that I utterly adore. If you listen regularly and can spare the odd fiver, that'll make you a lovely, lovely human too. Right, on with the show. Enjoy. David Sims, uh, Restaurant Associates Culinary Director, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Can I just ask, how are you and where are you in the world, please, David? 
Hi, Mark. Um, thanks for inviting me. Um, I'm currently in Essex at home. Okay, nice. Home, home office, is that where you've been predominantly based for the last sort of few months? Because just to date this, we're, we're still sort of tentatively in lockdown, I guess, certainly in our sector. Um, yes, it's home office, not. Um, back room, yes. So I've got the uh, both kids back from university and the wife all working from home. So yeah, I've been uh, relegated to the back room, which isn't bad because it gets good sunlight and uh, it's where the big TV is if I get bored. Not that Excellent. But uh, yeah, home, home for a while. Yeah, nice. I've got uh, younger kids and I have to chuck my son off his Xbox every time I do one of these just so that he doesn't completely spank the bandwidth. So he's uh, rather, well, not 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 necessarily grumpily, he's, he's he's a bit more cheerful than my daughter who goes a little bit more problematic, but he's uh, I think he's pretending to read a book. He's probably just downloaded something. <laughs> Excellent. All good fun. So um, you've had a really uh, impressive career. You've, you've worked in some incredible restaurants as a chef, but you've also done some pretty diverse sort of positions responsible for, you know, really broad range of hospitality businesses. So, so genuinely excited uh, to get your perspectives on all sorts of things today, because just by the range that you've done, I'm, I'm sure you must be uh, very well informed. But to set a little bit of background for people who don't know you uh, or don't know the restaurant associates, can you just explain a little bit about what your role is at the moment and the sort of uh, venues and operations that you're responsible for please david yeah absolutely so um restaurant associates or is part of ra group um which is uh, another part of compass group but we we basically it's broken into three different companies restaurant associates which um caters for uh, media companies tech companies financial institutes um etc then we have ra venues which is uh, visitor attractions and cultural heritage sites, and then we have rapport, which is our guest services department. So it's um, yeah, it's, it's broken into three areas, and it's it's good. So I'm culinary director, so I head up pretty much all the food and hot beverage solutions for that business. Um, we're international and national, so from South Coast all up to Scotland. We have a presence in New York, uh, which is run by subsidiary uh, in, in in the states. But uh, literally, we do everything from a, a sandwich in a zoo to a Michelin-style meal, really. So quite a diverse bit of business. Yeah, there can't be many jobs that cover that diversity. I mean, norm- normally, if you're you know responsible for the food in a Michelin-style restaurant, that takes up about 140 hours a week. Um, but you've managed to add hundreds of things to that. I take it you've got a pretty big team, have you? Yeah, uh, yeah, and they're excellent. You know, Mark, they really are. It's um, they're a pleasure to work with, and they're they're all exceptionally well skilled. So yeah, um, multiple skill levels across the the estate. But yeah, they're they're you know a great support function, and really really proud to have them on, on my side. Yeah. So for, from a sort of consumer perspective, what would be the the places or the either the, the venues or the restaurants that that people would know best? Um, so we have uh, we're Whipsay Zoo, HMS Belfast, Leeds Castle. Uh, Leeds Armory, to name some of the Edinburgh Zoo, to see some of the uh, visitor attractions, Eva Castle. Um, and then for uh, commercial restaurants, we, we're in partnership with Jason Atherton at City Social. We have Rue at Parliament Square with uh, Michelle Rue and uh, another partnership with Bryn Williams at Somerset House. Um, and then obviously the corporates is a mixture of, as I say, you know, private equity, media, tech and uh, legal and banks, etc., across across the, you know, probably in the city of London, but again, the the larger cities across the UK, so Birmingham, Manchester, Leeds, uh, Scotland, you know, so really demographic split, really up and down the yeah. country. 
my, my eyes are watering just imagining that. I, I sort of always blows my mind how these things run. You know, I've got three three restaurants and a little hotel within about four square miles of each other and seem to manage to sort of run around stressed most of the time. And uh, yeah, the, the, the scale of, uh, of what you're talking about there is phenomenal. What does your uh, average day look like then? Are you, are you out on the road? Are you on the pass? Are you behind a laptop? How does it work? Do you know what? It's a really good question. Mark. And, and, and every day is different. And that's what I think I enjoy about the role. There is no, there is no system to a point. Um, obviously, I'm not as hands-on as I used to be in the kitchen, but I, I do I love getting into the kitchen and, and being on the pass and stuff. Um, more that's more now for whether it's a large event or if it's a special dinner with either Michelle uh, or Jason or, you know, like a large event at Wimbledon or something, I tend to get involved in those sort of things. Or, or it's training and development is the other side I get into the kitchen, you know, really developing the group chefs and the kind of uh, the group execs and then the head chefs at sites just from demos and training platforms outside of that it's working with the sales team and the operation team and the finance team to to ensure we're running a a, a sharp and smart business really so whether that's engaging with clients um doing um sales presentations concept development um obviously again it's more managing the team to do the output but drive continue to drive the business forward really yeah, and and you're fairly unique in that sort of diversity of roles, I suppose, because you, you know, there's not many chefs, I guess, that also happen to have been, you know, the, the MD or, or at that sort of corporate level. But you know, you're 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 a proper chef. You're, you're famously sort of known for starting with a Rue family, uh, three years, I think, at, at uh, Le Gavroche in the early days. Um, yeah. what, what's your sort of most vivid memory? If you take yourself back that twenty odd years, whenever it was, what's your most sort of vivid memory of that part of your career in in the kitchens? Um. You know, that's, that's so close to my heart, you know, learning, you know, coming down to the London in the early 90s and working part of Rue restaurants. Um, and then, you know, the last three being at Le Gavroche were, you know, they're such, they're such great teachers. You know, they're, they're so insightful and, you know, they they were tough kitchens to work in back then. You know, I'm not going to lie about that. You know, the hours are long and there was a lot of pressure, but, you know, they, they, they really invested in people and, you know, teaching people the importance of the ingredient, whether it's a, a broad bean or a truffle, you know, the respect of that ingredient was, was a real key thing about, you know, teaching people how to cook the classical way and layering flavours, you know, balancing acidity and fat and all those things, which, you know, a lot of youngsters nowadays just don't seem to get that depth and breadth of training. Um, so that stuck with me really, really well as, as a young kid and, you know, I made a promise to myself. I'd never ask someone to do something I'm not. I don't know how to do myself because, you know, I, I respected people who did that to me, um, and it really kind of sculptured my my view of how to progress through the career. Yeah. A- any specific or particular chefs that sort of had the most influential impact on you over the years? Um, I'd say Michelle Junior, um, just because again he was he was the the first kind of real. Um, mentor I had really you know and you know I still obviously now I'm back with RA I still work very close with Michelle and I've been close to him you know throughout my career really and he's been there from personal support to to industry support you know he's, as I've moved through my career he's, he's advised me on a number of occasions so you know he's he's really been a real key part of my career. Okay, nice. Uh, and I was also I was quite relieved to hear because I've, as I said, I've got an eleven and twelve year old, and uh, I was watching something whereby you admitted to being quite a fussy eater when you were a kid, and my heart sort of leapt with joy because as a restaurateur, I'm sort of always shockingly embarrassed by my kids' lack of uh, appreciation of food. Um, what, what age were you when you actually sort of you know grew out of that? And please don't say nine. 
<laughs> I was horrific. I was such a fussy eater as a child. Good God. Um, I was, it was most probably not far shy of being nine. I'm not going to lie. Oh, God damn. I'm too yeah. late. Yeah. Um, it was, it was kind of then maybe I, I, mean, I wouldn't eat chicken. I wouldn't eat chicken. I wouldn't eat fish. I'd only eat bacon. Um, and then it wasn't until uh, the first time I ate chicken was I was nine and a half, ten. I was in Spain on holiday. I remember it vividly. Um, First time I ate roast chicken. And then, um, you know, I've just moved through. I didn't drink tea or coffee until I was 30. Um, 30? Wow. Yeah. Um, That's good for a chef. I thought chefs lived on espressos between yeah, sort of, no, you know, four, 4 and 7 a.m. <laughs> I just uh, it never, never connected with me. I just I didn't really like the bitter flavours of it. But, you know, I'm a massive addict of it now. Um, yeah. yeah, so, you know, and then maybe, you know, I went through my teens. I started getting a bit more adventurous and stuff. Um, and then something clicked you know um i i just fell in love with food i always enjoyed baking with my mum really enjoyed baking as my mum was a young kid um and then you know it just there's no going back really from that so kind of 12ish maybe really side bit okay okay that's better well done well done for a minute <laughs> thank you i'll give i'll give my daughter one one more year she, i i've kind of worked out that my kids basically will only eat anything that i they originally had between the ages of 1 and 3 because anything that they've not tried before they're like no i don't like that like, they they drive me but uh, I think they just like winding me up because they know that I'm in the industry, basically. So, um, so did, you know, was there a specific point? I suppose you were you were clearly interested, like you say, in baking and cooking, you know, with with your mum. But was there a specific point when you think, you know, what I'm actually going to make a career out of this? And, and do you remember when that was? Um, yeah, you know, I I had two passions. You know, it was, it was cooking, and I wanted to be. My father was in the air force, and I wanted to be a, a pilot. But um, you know, he was very honest with me. He said, look, you know, my eyesight wasn't good enough. Um, and, you know, I need to just to deal with that and move on. You know, nowadays you can get laser surgery, but back then it was just not, not ever going to happen. So, um, you know, when, when I was, I remember he was 14, I was 14 when he, when he told me that, he sat me down and said, look, you're not going to, it's just not going to happen. So I was there, from that point, I was right, I'm going to be a cook. And, um, you know, just applied myself to that. Amazing. That's a pretty good insight to have at such a young age, isn't it? Yeah, no, as I say, it was, it was the only two things that really, interesting you know i'm moving around the world with my dad in the RAF. i just you know i loved that i loved the the is the, the ethos of the the military you know i like the regiment you know the concise precise elements of it and you know just really kind of kindled to that and then you know i also enjoyed cooking but nothing else really you know excited me really you know so i was dyslexic i am dyslexic as a child so you know i struggled at school in certain things because it wasn't really open back then um, you know, kind of got taken the mickey out of quite a bit in, in some schools. It didn't, also didn't help that I was moving around every two years with you know, my parents living in the forces. Um, so kind of, you know, just hands-on, I really appreciated that sort of work and fell in love with it, really. Hmm. Amazing. Um, and then I guess, you know, unusually, as I alluded to just now, you know, for a chef, you also ended up in a couple of MD roles. Uh, did, did you find the skills transferred? Because I guess... Um, you know, a lot of chefs are either, you know, exceptionally practical and, and live life in the kitchen. And then there's an inevitability that's become more and more important to at least understand, you know, the, the numbers and the GP, I suppose, and, and the business acumen. But not everybody takes that all the way to the MD level. How did you find that transition? Um, again, quite, quite natural. Um, I mean, again, uh, I w- when I went through the restaurants and at the end of it, it was, um, you know, roof on dining was part of, of Compass back in the late 90s. And I don't think I would have been able to do it without the, the 
meeting and the system approach that something like a corporate company like has very systematic very you know um it's there to learn if you want it and again my approach from again i said from an early age was i was never going to ask someone to do something i didn't know how to do myself um so i always made sure that i could understand something and if i didn't know i'd already always ask and, and get the understanding so i always went through that level and the systems systematic approach of large company really taught me so much and it you know just it just enabled me to do what i did but um i loved the the dynamic and the financial um challenge of being an md and you know running the businesses with both simon and richard who are phenomenal guys um it was a it was a great part of my life and you know i really am grateful for the ability to that i did it yeah I think to be fair, you know, if you can manage a brigade of chefs, then then everything else after that is is probably easier. And, ma- and managing a company, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a comparative walk in the park. Um, I, I think as a sector, you know, we've uh, you know, chefs are renowned, I suppose, as being perhaps a more challenging aspect of of being a restaurateur. Any advice to restaurateurs? You, you must have managed you know, a phenomenal number of of people and seen a phenomenal number of you know personalities. I'm guessing from lots of different nationalities. What's the best way to kind of inspire, motivate? a manager brigade in the kitchen do you think um for me it's it's all about leading by example you know um you know communication is key sometimes people you know you've got to doubt yourself before you doubt others okay is it my fault i've not communicated clearly have i not trained them enough i've not given them all the tools to do their job it's too many people are too quick to to blame others and it's you know if you can lead by example and, and nurture and develop people Again, you're only as good as the people around you, right? So surround yourself with really, really good people, motivate them, communicate with them, and life becomes easy. Just like that. <laughs> <laughs> just, yeah. just, just writing that down. I was just asking for a friend. Uh, <laughs> do you think that um that culture in the kitchen has changed a lot you know you, you've been in there for what 20 25 years whatever it is do, do you think that is a genuine change uh yeah in, in kitchen culture absolutely um you know going back in the early days you know it was kitchens were a closed book you know recipes was, were very secretive you know methods were secretive and it was you know to learn anything you had to go on a stage um, you, you know, you weren't treated necessarily the, the best way. Um, and that was tough, right? So it was tough. So to, to really get on, you really had to apply yourself and do long hours and do commit. Nowadays, with social media and the internet, literally, you can do three stages in a week without going leaving your house. You know, you, you as long as you've got the basic knowledge and understanding of and of seeing how someone's doing something, you can you can pick up things quite quickly and as long as you apply that bandwidth to your brain and, and, you know, you can review things quite simply, but it's certainly changed treatment of people, you know, um, working hours, which I think is, is the right move. And also the aggression. Um, it, I'm so glad aggression's dying down, um, in, in across most of the industry because it's, it's not the best way to get out of people, is it? You know? Um, so yeah, I think it's really, really changed over the years and it's still got a long way to go, but now we're stuck with a different challenge, right? We're stuck with a challenge of, some people who are more interested in staring at their phone don't like to be given deadlines, want to turn up when they want to turn up. You know, so it's shifted from one problem to another. But it's, you know, it's, it's, you just got to continually adapt, understand your workforce and, and try and understand how to get the best out of them. 
Mm. Yeah, it seems to be much more a sense of entitlement, I think, doesn't there, with the younger chefs coming through and this sort of uh, thing of, you know, I've done I've done that section for three months, so I've nailed that, so I'd, I'd like to be sort of, you know, CDP or, or sous chef now. Uh, whereas yeah, putting in a couple of years just on the, on, on the sauce or on the meat doesn't seem, I don't know, seem to be less patient. Would that be a fair observation? Uh, yeah, absolutely. They, they are, you know, they come in and they want to be a sous chef before they've done any groundwork. And it's, it's like any art, okay? You, you've got to, you, you learn by, by doing and, you know, repetition and you learn by your mistakes, you know, and it's by only doing that, you can improve yourself and understanding, you know, how to balance the source, you know, people just sometimes don't think, and especially if they think putting 20 things on a plate is being really successful and uh, sometimes three things done exceptionally well will blow your mind. Um, and it's about, you know, understanding how to create and plate flavours and handle food uh, and then ultimately handle people and make it financially viable, really. So they yeah. kind of want to jump before they can even forget the running piece. They want to jump before they can even grow. Yeah. And, and and part of the issue that sort of made that was, and I agree absolutely, you know, the, the culture needed to change. And I think there was a lot of uh, chefs, I suppose, that have come through the industry that were, you know, shouted at and worked in aggressive kitchens. And, and thank goodness they've sort of recognized that they didn't enjoy being managed that way back in the day. And now they're quite often in charge of kitchens and they're helping to change that culture. Um, but there seemed to be a, you know, a real shortage of chefs in the last uh, few years. Uh, is that something that you've experienced? I mean, clearly now it looks like it's probably going to flip the other way with the pandemic, which will come in too shortly. But yeah, would you say there's been challenges in recruitment recently? Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, it's, I kind of think it's been since the 2008 recession, um, there was a real hit. You know, a lot of the Australians and Kiwis and, um, you know, Canadians were on two year visas. Kind of that kind of um, shriveled up quite fast in that period, never really came back. Um, but again, it's, it, it's, it's really tough out there. You know, you know, again, it's, Going back 25 years ago, you'd have to apply to three or four restaurants and be on, you know, when I was at Gavroche, it was an 18-month waiting list, 18 months to get into that place. Um, and pretty much now, if you, you know, if you can write a nice email, polite email, you can walk into any kitchen if you've got the right attitude um, and you, you want to, you know, commit yourself. You can get anywhere, any two-star, three-star, one-star restaurant. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a really different approach. Um, and it's not it's not going to get any easier. So that's why I think it's really important you put time and effort into your team to really nurture and develop them and bring them up through the ranks. Yeah. I was chatting to Peter Ducker from the Institute of Hospitality a couple of weeks ago, so episode 85 for anybody who wants to listen. But we were very much chatting about the kind of traditional college routes, I suppose, university routes of hospitality. And, and now that the colleges and, and unis are much more about making a profit, you know, perhaps than necessarily educating people and that hospitality, particularly kitchens, you know, it's a lot of investment in kit and space and human beings that they, they just... You know, I don't know if it's supply or demand led, but there's certainly a drop in courses. Uh, what's your experience of that sort of, uh, yeah, people coming up from college and are you having to set up your own apprenticeships in, instead of? Can you just talk about yeah, your, your experience of that, I guess? Yeah, I think there's there's less people going through college. It seems that way, as you say. Um, I've got some great connections at Westminster Kingsway. Um, and, you know, we're, we've also got our own apprenticeship scheme within within the company, which is one of the key things I, you know, really wanted to focus on when I came back to to RA was, you know, really build that and nurture it because the, the, you've got to build some sort of future for the, the the guys that are coming in. You know, there's I've seen so many youngsters come in, we've done college, come in and last six months in the industry and then just go off and do something else because they, you know, they've they've either been 
taught incorrectly and they just don't they don't realize what they're getting into um and then you know so getting the people you've got you know we trying to build a continual network of apprentices through the Westminster and our own accreditation system so we can build them up from you know an apprentice into a commie and then you know within three years we get into a CDP process um and then even continue it further than that you know because there's a gap isn't there from you know you become a CDP and and you're running a section and you think okay I'm doing really well then you get given a sous chef role and you've then got to you've got to start writing rotors you've got to start help you helping running the the business doing ordering and stuff and you've got to manage more people and then become a head chef and you're responsible for a P&L, you know, you know, sundries, all that sort of stuff. And you've, no one's ever taught you how to do that. So it's, you know, we're looking at building a kind of degree level uh, qualification, which we're working with a few people on, which would be really exciting to give that next level of, you know, financial uh, knowledge really from ground roots up. Um, how to manage situations, how to de- deal with conflict, how to deal with all those things that you need in your toolkit to, to manage your business effectively. Um, you know, how to read people and, you know, notice if people are, are struggling mentally, you know, and so you can be that guidance support for them. You know, how to interact with suppliers and, you know, build an offer. Be creative because it's, it's such a missing link of, you know, you, as I recently said, you know, you come up and then all of a sudden you're expected to know these things, which you just don't get taught. Yeah, no, I feel for any chefs, and you, you sort of all too too often see, I suppose, people are basically promoted until the point, you know, where they're, they're the least competent person for that role, I suppose. Mm. Um, is that is that something you've done here? Because, because you, you know, you're absolutely right. It's, it's such an it's such an exciting industry, where, as you alluded to, you know, you can be you can be dyslexic, you know, you don't need to be the most academic person at school, you can come into chef, and which everyone knows, people don't realise that you can become a director, you, you know, then become an, an MD of a company. That internal training that teaches you all those skills that you just mentioned, is, is that something you work with the local colleges or universities on? Or is that something purely that you run in house? Uh, it's a mixture of the two. So we've got a great L&D team, um, which, which runs that and also, you know, working with colleges, you know, throughout my career, you know, um, I've, I've either linked to college or of some description where I've been, you know, um, I was lucky enough to be invited into the Royal Academy of Culinary Arts quite a few years back and, you know, from a doctor school process to, you know, engaging with con, um, colleges to, to help support students from giving them work experiences to develop them, to mentoring them. And then, you know, doing things like the annual award of excellence through the academy and again, nurturing people, um, you know, and then pushing and get through to the scholarship and all those sort of things is really, really great. So building platforms, as I say, we're, we're trying to build some, we've got our own, but working with colleges like Westminster and stuff, just really helpful to, to give you a broader spectrum. You know, I'm also looking at doing some um with the levy, obviously the apprenticeship levy, there's there's thousands, hundreds of thousands of pounds just sitting there. So trying to work on creative solutions where we can support, certainly come out of COVID, you know, support our baker, bakery suppliers and our, our butchery and fishmongery suppliers, where we can you know, utilise their skill set to be part of uh, an accreditation scheme where they can get funding from the government. We, we don't get anything apart from you know, interested and skilled chefs from the other end of it. So just continually trying to be creative how we can develop our teams to, to continue to grow them and benefit everyone really. 
Mm. Yeah, it's good. I guess I, I mainly end up sort of chatting to the the smaller scale independent sector, I guess, which is which is a bit I get particularly excited and passionate about. But it, you know, you have got an amazing opportunity with the number of chefs you've got and the resources and just the diversity of places, I suppose, that you can put people as part of their development. You know, it, it is a great opportunity to make it a much more rounded career, I suppose, than a than a direct. Yeah, uh, a, a, absolutely. And, and and you know, if you if you give people something to like, you can map out their journey for them. They're, they're hopefully they're going to be more interested in sticking around with you, so you can you can continuously developing them. Um, and whatever it is, you know, um, you can only benefit from that, right? The business can only benefit from benefit from it, and so everyone wins. Yeah, I know, hundred percent. So, moving on to the uh, the pandemic, obviously we're in the in the midst of uh, yeah, you know, restaurants and bars are still closed. Have you had anything open? Have you got any sort of takeaway outlets that have stayed open, or have you been completely shut down for the last few months? So we've been we're currently running about four percent. Uh, wow, four <laughs> percent uh, of revenue or four percent of venues? Uh, revenue, right? So, um, yeah, it's, it's massively reduced. Um, literally, we've got a handful of sites which have stayed open due to and we, we, we're. You know, some traders and some tech people who obviously have to work. Um, so yeah, it's minimal, minimal. Um, but it's been good because we've, you know, there's been some really important people we've had to, you know, some key workers we've supported and, and stuff. So it's great, but obviously much more reduced. We've been really focusing on on the reopening piece and how we get around that. Yeah, perfect. Well, that's kind of what I wanted to chat to you about today, really. So, you know, I, like I say, I've got, you know, a few venues and, and the complexity, they're all slightly different. You know, I've got a little hotel, I've got a, a restaurant on a beach where you can, it's pretty easy to do takeaway onto the sand. And I've got a place with a big terrace. And then I've got a place with much sort of lower ceilings and much more enclosed. The complexity of looking at each individual place, you know, hurts my brain. You've got a, a few hundred uh, outlets to, to, to worry about. How are you getting on with, with planning reopening then? And what sort of challenges are you uh, are you coming across? Um, I mean, you're right. I mean, we've, we're, we're lucky though. We've got a, I've got a whole HSE team to to help me guide me through and, and the team through that. So we've got a you know, structured team around us. But the main thing, as you say, every building's different. You know, it's got different issues. It's got a pillar here. It's got you know the kitchen's only a big. You know, so there's, there's you know you've got you can't just do a one size fits all approach, which is obviously then makes the workload even harder. But it's just from we try and break it down to small. Um, pieces each piece at a time so from from a coffee perspective you know we look at the the layout of the counters and apply a you know a simplistic approach to it so you, you apply a single traffic designated task so you know you hand off the task to what you might have had six people behind that counter now you're only having three so the guy who's texturing the milk also does the coffee extraction and also does the you know, individual unique, unique piece of joint sugar or whatever else so on doing the till work and then the third person's handing off so you just change the the skill set of the team and give them a flow diagram same with the kitchen space um you know changing you know, breaking up the sections per se and you know the guy who's on on that section might have to do a garnish and something else and do a sauce because he, he can't move around the kitchen per se or so just challenge it in that way and really look from a floor plan perspective work on flows working on how we can split this, the structures of the team so we can have different shifts to enable the right people into the, the right spaces. But also then from the, you know, the flow of the customers, it's how we adapt the food offer to, to do that. So in the casual environment, we've, we're, flipped, we're flipping to a click and collect model. So um, sandwiches, coffee, you know, box salads, quite nutritional stuff. 
um, obviously massively reduced menu, so people can click and collect via an on- online platform. So we can reduce waste, we can work smarter, um, and give the consumers hopefully an offer that they want to have and they feel safe because they don't necessarily have to queue. Um, it's the restaurants, you know, the commercial restaurants where, like everyone else, we're going to, you know, based on the one or two meter rules, you know, we're going to struggle. So it's very mm. Yeah. So what's, because all of that, or most of it, certainly, maybe a little bit different in, in the QSR model, but, you know, some of the stuff you were talking about there has an inevitable impact on supply, not necessarily demand, but if you've, if you've gone from six people behind the counter to three or six in the kitchen to three, you clearly can't make and produce as much stuff. How can you make, we, you know, we, we had a reputation as running on exceptionally tight margins, particularly in the last couple of years. Uh, what's your thoughts around actually the, the viability of that from a commercial perspective? Yeah, again, it's a real, it's a real, Tricky question, isn't it? You know, uh, you've just got to be smarter. I mean, you know, obviously the menu needs to be reduced. You've got to make sure your menu's the right menu so you've got the right offer to people. Um, and then in one way, you should be more efficient because you've, you know, you're being more, you're not doing so many things. So you've got less chance of wastage. You've got less production. So your labor team can be leaner. Um, it's just, you just got to look at yourselves and, and, and control your, your production really. Um, but it's 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 the unknown, you know. It's the moment where some of our buildings in the wharf um, are sitting around ten percent. We might get up to thirty percent by September, um, maybe fifty percent by December. So it, it really it's it's so different to the norm. You've got to be able to, as I said earlier, be really agile to adapt to as those things come in and the volume start creeping up. How you can either expand your offer to maintain the continuity and, and interest with your customer base, but without overstretching it, so you become wasteful and unproductive. Yeah, it's going to it's going to rely on a on a much more sort of understanding consumer, I guess. Isn't it? I was chatting to uh, Geising Watson from Riverford Organics a few weeks ago. I don't know if you know them, but they're sort of box box delivery company, basically. And uh, you know, they they'd introduced a huge amount of complexity due to sort of consumer demand over the years. So you could tweak your boxes, you could add yes. things, you know, change the day a week you got delivery, and they got absolutely swamped. You know, That's during the the lockdowns everybody wanted their food delivered and he was actually pretty excited about the opportunity to to go back the only way that he could cope with demand was to take away all of that choice which is what kind of what he wanted to do originally anyways he wanted people to follow the seasons and it really he wants you to get what you're given you know you get a box of food through the door that, that that's you know bang on what's in season uh, and, and get rid of all that choice it, it sounds like it's going to be a little bit the same in, in restaurants you know we've been looking at our menus and yes simplifying them so that you can have less staff and, and less waste um do you think the consumer's got any idea of the sort of new hospitality world they're going to go into and, and do you think they're going to be patient do you know what i think i uh, well, i think they will but i hope they will i think you know it's been really interesting to see you know seeing people just have had to adapt their lives already right you, you go out you never used to see people sitting on a green you know since you know before you know social issues slightly relaxed over the last couple of weeks you know, I never used to see people sat on the green near my house, you know, with their kids and on a blanket and stuff. You know, they've, they've adapted their lives and I think they, everyone's had to go through that. So I think hopefully they will. If Whereas I think if there's pockets of people doing different things, they might have been less forgiving. Um, so hopefully they'll understand. But you're right. I mean, the, the demand from the consumer in the past was, I want it slightly different. I want it that way. I want it this way. I want that. And then you had all the dietaries and, and all the all the fads and the allergens. And, you know, you had to really scale things up. And, and hopefully simplicity will just come and, and, and consumers will 
appreciate and not take for granted what they've not been having for 13, 14, 16 weeks, whatever it is, by the time they get back to normality. Um, so I, I really hope they do and then, and then they understand. And I, I, to part of me thinks they will. Yeah, well, same. I think we 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 hope because you know, in many ways, there's some advantages around that, isn't there? So uh, yeah, it'd be nice. Uh, same with with opening hours and stuff. I suppose. I don't know. I just feel like, and this might be down to rents and the economies of restaurants, but we've seen tighter margins. So I think we've we've just sort of yeah, we've we've put more and more stuff in so that we're still attractive to the consumer. We've opened more and more hours, but we almost make it harder, more complex. Margins go down, profitability goes down. But one of the big things is that you know landlords feel they can charge more because restaurants are generally you know take take the most money in any kind of development or unit i know rents is a is a big issue across the sector what's your thoughts around that and and what's your experience with landlords at the moment are they uh, are they engaging um mixed i mean luckily i've um not had to have many conversations with landlords uh, per se because we were normally in other tenanted buildings but it's you know speaking to friends and colleagues in the industry it's mixed it's really mixed you know some are being very supportive and and some not so um which i think is quite short-sighted uh you know because what do they want an empty building at the end of the day where they've still got to pay rates on it's i think you know again it, there's so many different spins on this mark i think you know i i hope again you know i'm there to help my guy friends wherever i can and, and stuff but I know that some of them had some really tough conversations and, you know, um, it's it's really brutal. And it, as you say, I think where businesses have had to grow and grow and grow and adapt and adapt and adapt and the offer just expands, again, you know, as you know, that just erodes your margin. So hopefully coming back and people will be a bit more efficient because people will understand. And, you know, landlords, again, you know, seeing, going back to the 2008 recession, when the you know the five year deals ended in two thousand and thirteen, um, you know there was then rent release and everything else because they wanted to maintain you know tenants and etc. But then in two thousand eighteen, when those extensions came out, you know there was massive hits from you know landlords. You know I remember in, in West End where landlords were trying to double rents back then, um, just because they had never really recovered from the two thousand eight recession. And I, I just hope they've learned from that. And, you know, where they've ended up having empty spaces, like you see on the high street, there's so many empty retail spaces where people they just can't get the people in because the rates are too big. So hopefully, Mark, people will understand lesson from a landlord perspective and, and not be greedy, I hope, you know, industries yeah. can struggle. There's a there's a there's a lot of hopes there. My finance director doesn't let me use the word hope, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> hope's, hope's not enough, apparently. So I, yeah. if he listens to this, he'll uh, chuckle. You you know a lot of people in the industry. You're obviously speaking to a lot of people. Do you think it, you know we've seen a lot more um, CVAs or or worse sort of people going going pop already, particularly I suppose in the last week. You know we're, we're we've still got this uh, unclear kind of opening date. Is yeah. your feeling? most people are going to find a way through this or do you think we're on the brink of a potential sort of tsunami of, of places either opening for a short period of time or not opening at all what's the sort of general vibe you're getting from chatting to people i think we're we're at a tip of a wave i think you know, it's about to crash potentially either some will hopefully ride it out and the others will, will crash and burn i think it's you know obviously cash flow is really important to people right and it's depending on how they've managed to deal with their business over the closure, whether they've managed to clear the debt, uh, you know, creditors off and stuff like that. I think with the uncertainty around the the date opening and the two meter rule, 
also, you know, the furlough scheme, you know, there's not many restaurateurs I know that be able to, you know, fund, you know, even the NI and pension piece, let alone 10% of a wage of a, a member of staff they've, if they've got no revenue. You know, I just, I can't say anyone can do that. So I think it's really tough. And it's, I again, it's going to, I think we're, we're in a, you know, you join you know, terminology on a tsunami it's going to potentially flood very quickly if people don't make the decision sooner rather than later um which is a real shame it's a real because there's you know i mean look at look at Pret at the ledbury i mean what it's devastating you know that poor guy can't you know his space doesn't allow him to do to do that and that's a phenomenal restaurant um you know so he just can't open up with two meters you know he couldn't could even open up with one meter but um, it's a different issue, right? But again, it's you know, with the labour challenge and everything else. I think you know, I think we've got certainly over the next two weeks as we flip into July, when people will start, you know, we've got thirty days till the end of July. I think we're going to see a few more, unfortunately. Mm. Do you think the government uh, get it? I mean, it's, it seems it seems odd that we have had no real sort of movement and response. All, all we've been told is, you know, not before the 4th of July, not before the 4th of July. And we're kind of all like, look, you know, particularly in the hotel sector, you, you can't, you know, tell tell hotel guests that they can come on the 4th of July and expect them to come on the 4th of July. You know, people book ahead for these kind of things. Do you think there's a lack of comprehension or, or what's your thoughts on, yeah, what, why the government doesn't seem to be giving clarity at the moment? Yeah, I, I, I've got some strong views on this. I, I think it's really bizarre. I think, you know, I found it very confusing. They said they gave us two weeks notice or 10 days notice that we had to wear face coverings on trains and tubes. Why not implement it straight away? You know, what, you know why are they saying, why are they giving us any guidance, as you say, to the 4th of July? Um, it, it's very, very peculiar. I don't understand it. You know, and, and I think they can do more for us. I think they've done a great job. Um, you know, I'm not saying that, but, you know, there's countries like Germany who've dropped their VAT rate for, for a whole calendar year to help support the hospitality industry. You know, um, we could do something similar, you know, where just free up more cash flow within your business so you can, you know, because none of us could put our prices up, right? Not, not and encourage people back into the business. So I think there is more the government can do. And um, I think communication is is got to be improved from you know to to educate people you know how safe it will be or how it won't be safe but also so businesses can really set up and try and get back to normality they seem to do it about you know they, they did it with the open air markets they did it with retail but i don't know why they're not doing it with hospitality i'm really confused yeah it is. It's become increasingly confusing. I think you know. You, you look over towards France, and you know the French, I suppose, are you know renowned for culinaire, and 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 they clearly recognise you know that that uh, restaurants, cafe culture, espressos in the square is sort of the fabric of society. And and you sort of felt like that had changed in the last sort of twenty years here, and we'd become much more sort of known for our in- incredible restaurants. You know, some of the best restaurants in the world. But this has made me worry a little bit about yeah. Do, do they appreciate that just from a placemaking perspective? You know, the point of being on planet earth where you want to live you know you, you want to move into the parts of the town or the city or the coast with with nice bars and restaurants and you know we get taxed a phenomenal amount i think it's something like 38 billion pounds a year that hospitality pays into the coffers we've got you know rates on beer and and, and, and sort of taxes on wine and spirits and all this kind of stuff so it feels like we give an incredible amount uh, and, and i was hoping with with uk hospitality coming out and saying you know clearly a message to the public with a third biggest employer in the country we employ three and a half million people it felt like we were getting some momentum and some recognition but mm-hmm. i can't help but feel that that's that's ground to a halt a little bit 
Yeah, no, I totally agree. And it's, 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 it's mad. It's absolutely mad. And I don't understand it. As you say, it's, it's such a, a key part of society. You know, it creates so much income. It creates so many jobs. It's a massive part of, of the world and, and, you know, and culturally of this country. And I don't, I don't get it when they're clearly communicating about other, other industries. And I just don't know why they're not doing it for us. Because there is yeah. what they could do. As I say, yeah. relief, whether it's, you know, there's, there's multiple things. Indeed. And we can clearly help the high street. You know, I sympathize for, for retail uh, and the move online, but you can't really do, apart from delivery, obviously, you can't do food and drink online. So we, you know, we can help if you bring more people to living in town centers and you create, you know, more of a cafe culture, we can do a lot for a town center. But uh, yeah, it just feels like we need uh, a little bit of support. Well, although the, the hospitality sector has been getting at least in, increased sort of recognition, I guess, we hear less uh, about the suppliers, much more about the operators. What, what's your experience with the supply chain? Uh, how are they getting on the sort of people you speak to and any sort of specific examples, I suppose, of people that have been impacted further up the chain? Yeah, again, you know, there's been some great guys go under, unfortunately, who, have, who just can't reopen due to, for multiple reasons. But again, <clears throat> there's there's some guys who have been able to um, just mothball because it, it fits their model, you know, like the, you know, some great fish guys down on the South coast. Um, but for me, it's, I think we're going to have, certainly on the specialty gear, you know, there's going to be, a, there's going to be a gap whenever we reopen because it's about, when you start re. I was speaking to our butcher yesterday, you know, they, they reopened yesterday as in got staff back, not to start selling, but to start, you know, getting some animals to slaughter, so we start dry aging them, you know, looking at trying to get forecasting on volumes. So they're, they're kind of ready for the fourth um, at some level. But again, there's all the crops that, which were, were harvested, sorry, weren't harvested, were planted. So they got, went into, you know, specialty stuff. And then you're going to have that gap again, where you, if you're not rotating your crops fast enough, you're going to miss out. And then you've had the, you know, the weather yield issues and supermarket issues. So it's going to come and bite us, I think, you know, especially cheese production, all those things that are kind of stopped. Even coffee, you know, with the harvesters in Brazil, I was talking to a, a friend last week and uh, in Brazil, they were kind of fine and they were just coming to the harvest uh, season and then had a case. And literally the, the Friday before they were supposed to start the harvesting, they got their first case and then the local villages put barriers up they weren't letting anyone in let alone the government they didn't want to get didn't want to get caught so then they basically destroy the whole of their first coffee harvest which would be criminal they'd get they'd just go under so i think it's there's different pockets of different specialty people i think obviously the core stuff has been grown because you know um supermarkets and and stuff have carried on it's the specialty stuff i think you know the which is going to impact and we'll have a gap again when we reopen yeah, crazy, isn't it? We can't run out of coffee. Oh, God, I can't. I can't survive. Um, do, do you think, in general, you know, even excluding COVID, I suppose, what's your thoughts on the supply chain and how close you know restaurants can get? Because, um, you know, do do you think chefs are getting better or worse? It feels like it feels like society in general is getting worse at sort of understanding where food comes from, and we we just you know go to the supermarkets. Uh, and and I've had chefs before that you know care predominantly are just about you know how the food tastes and, and and not necessarily where it comes from and the provenance and the ethics behind it do you have a feel for the sort of the you know the general uh, movement i suppose within the industry and, and if, are we getting closer or further away from our supply chain um mixed 
in different sectors of the business, really. I think top end, people are getting closer to the commodity and being more focused on on how it's grown in the variety and and in the, certainly from, you know, look at the the depleting fish levels and stuff like that. So I think it's, it's the awareness is increasing and, and, but it's the mass production of stuff, which I think is destroying the planet. And, you know, speaking out of tone or not, it's the, it's the supermarkets that need to be held accountable for that. You know, the war on plastics, they still wrap a cucumber in plastic, you know, why? Um, you know, so it's, I think I'd, I'd love to get to the stage where seasonality is driven by demand, but it, it won't be. People still want to eat strawberries in December, which is criminal really. But I think um, educating people is, and from the young age, you know, for me is, is the important part of that. But the, the fact of the matter is, right, we have to change the way we eat as a planet because we can't sustain it. You know, but you know, by 2050, we've, we've got to be down to less than eight percent of our daily intake of animal protein. You know, it's it's crazy because the you know, so we've got to do it in a way of not preaching to people, but hopefully educating people so they can be aware of it and and hold the large corporate businesses to accountable, like you know, supermarkets for battery chickens and all the things that shouldn't be that shouldn't be done yeah i actually liked it when you said it should be criminal to eat strawberries in december that'd be quite a good way of resolving it if, it, if that was i don't know if that's a genuine proposal might table it but you know it, but again it goes back to the question we touched on earlier about demand right if we removed it from the shelves it would it would go back it would you know people would you know sorry we can't grow it you're not having it you know so i think it'd be some really ballsy move by someone to do that um I think it would help massively, you know, enabling crop rotation and all that stuff. So the planet is, you know, we're looking protecting it for the future. Um, I think it's really important, and and it's good to see some top end guys really focusing on that. Um, really importantly, um, yeah. I, I feel that, you know, it, it should be our moral responsibility, really. I think in the same way that you expect an airline pilot, you know, to know more about flying a plane than you do. You know, I think if you work in, in kitchens and restaurants and around food, you know, there's an inevitability that we should know more about where food comes from, yeah, the, the monocultures, the effect on farming. Um, but it's such a big challenge. I don't I don't know how we get the consumer to care more. I, I go through periods of optimism where I think it's changing uh, and I get excited and I think we're, we're hopefully moving it was one of the reasons for launching this podcast was to take yeah. people sort of uh, you know subconscious to, to conscious decision making but then when I see the queues outside all of the national sort of fast food chains in the last 10 days where people will queue for two hours for you know something shit I, I get depressed again and think maybe we're not making any progress yeah. uh, it's you a frustration to- we have a responsibility as an industry to try and help this I guess yeah, and it's and it's the tricky one, isn't it? As I said, it's about how you educate someone without preaching to them, um, and it's awareness. And for me, it's getting youngsters really getting hold on at a young age because they're the people in, you know who are going to make the those decisions as they grow up, right? You know, and the ten year olds now in ten years are going to be buying their own things. It, it's it's, a, it's it's terrible. You're right. We should be held accountable for it. Um, we are the gatekeepers of you know every industry and every business we run. You know, we're, we're down to us to control that and we should absolutely take pride in it. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's a real challenge because consumers don't want to hear about that at the point that they're sat in a restaurant, you know, 7.30 on a Friday night. They just want a treat and they want 
want a nice bottle of wine and they don't want to yeah they don't want to be lectured and they don't want to be educated they just want to enjoy themselves but i can't I, yeah i can't help feel that as a sector we, you know we we need some sort of uh, movement or, or body or support um that just works closer with supplies you know i feel for the farmers it just looks like they get constantly pushed for you know produce more and produce it cheaper and i guess it has to come from government hopefully henry henry dimbleby has been working on this isn't he looking at the sort of uh, the supply chain and I, I don't know where he's got to but hopefully some change is coming yeah i mean we did a nice thing, nice thing last year we um speaking to one of our suppliers latest farmers you know they've got a, a great um rare breed pork farmer uh name her name's robin um and you know we committed to taking all all of her pigs um every year just so i mean she's got phenomenal berkshire pork and you know it's a royal bloodline two two royal, last in the royal bloodline animals and you know it's um we committed to taking all, all her pork from, from her so she could stay producing, you know, it's just simple things like that. I mean, it's only like 80 pigs a year. It's not like it's huge. But, um, it, it's it's a way we can use, utilise to support, you know, a really good producer like that from Cumbria. Uh, and we can use it from everything to, you know, dry aging it for the, for the top end restaurants or teaching youngsters how to break down the back end of a, a, a pig and using slow roasting the legs and stuff. So, I mean, it's stuff like that where you can really help and support the producers because they get treated hard, right? You know, with government subsidies and everything else. It's it's just so difficult for them to to maintain the standards. Yeah. Well, what we, the key thing it seems to be in farming is that we need to agree prices in advance and just not have this market volatility because it's 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 a, you know an impossible position that they're in where they're producing a product having no idea what the sale price for that product is going to be at the end of production. So they don't know how much they can invest in in land, how much they can invest in uh, in feed and the quality of that feed and what they're doing because they don't know what they're selling the item for. So you know I think we just need to commit earlier on to we will buy your product at this price as long as it meets these kind of criteria. But the yeah. the supermarkets is almost like well you know the price has dropped you know this is this is the latest development this is what's happening in the international market and therefore we're going to pay you 25 percent less than we agreed we would that's got to be an impossible scenario It'd be like us opening wouldn't it on a friday night and then yeah changing the price to you know two-thirds of the way through the evening because demand dropped in china or something it must be bon- yeah. driving, must driving bonkers yeah. and again it goes down to you know supermarkets they they control so much of that they put so much pressure on on producers don't they yeah hugely it's interesting you mentioned meat earlier so your your thoughts and we've seen and, and it was probably a frustration of the sector maybe a couple of years ago but and you mentioned sort of fad diets as well but hopefully there's a difference this sort of growth around vegan and, and plant-based it feels for the first time that this isn't a fad perhaps there seems to be a sort of you know a, a genuine kind of uh, prolonged growth i suppose in in this area would would that be a reflection of your experience as well yeah absolutely i think again it's um it's certainly something that's just sticking around and, and, you know, I'm glad it's, you know, so I don't hardly regard fad diets much at all. You know, everyone's personal body's different. You know, my, I, I react differently to you, to everyone else. You know, some people can tolerate gluten, some people can't. So the diets don't necessarily work, but, you know, I think it's important again for me, it's about awareness and it's, it's not to jump on the bandwagon. Oh, I'm a vegan, I'm a vegetarian. It's about, you know, reducing the quality of, animal protein you're eating but increasing the quality of it so you can eat less of it and then balance out your diet with with great wholesome vegetables which are why wouldn't you want to do that i mean it's so again it comes down to how you produce it how you cook it and the consumers sometimes unfortunately don't understand that a really good um dish doesn't mean without protein on it doesn't mean it's going to be cheaper to produce 
Yeah, no, quite quite often the opposite. You think of the the, the work that goes into a really good quality sort of plant based burger compared to a yeah. beef burger, and it's it's much more complex to do the plant version, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's um, so again, it's how you drive that awareness and and break the norm. Um, you know, you don't need to eat two hundred grams of chicken at lunchtime. You know, there's enough protein from chickpeas and nutrient dense greens like kales and brassicas, etc. You know, so it's about just again being creative and delivering that really exciting food offer that that delivers on that point and message. Mm. Okay. One of the other uh, big sort of trends, I guess, that we were seeing before uh, the pandemic, but, but it's only been sort of, you know, 10x multiplied during it, is this like, this sort of thing around delivery uh, and, and the likes of, you know, Deliveroo and Uber and all these guys, which probably originally came about with this sort of desire to try and deliver sort of, you know, restaurant quality food to your home. But I think quite quickly, restauranteurs said, look, you, you can't put our style of food on the back of a motorbike and drive it three miles and expect it to come out like it does in a restaurant. Um, but lots of people were sort of feeling they needed to dabble into it, really tricky to prove if it was any actually, you know, viable or worth doing because of the, the cut that these companies take. Um but now, you know, more and more people and, and maybe the growth of things like Netflix and Amazon and there's more to do at home so people are less bored. So, so it looked like a challenging time for the sector anyway with this shift to home eating. Um, what's your experience been? Have you, have you dabbled with any of these uh, companies or has that not been sort of relevant in your sector yet? Um, yeah, there's been uh, a kind of a test bed done with it um, very early stages for certain parts of the business, which it's relevant to. Um but again, it's, it, I don't think it's going to be our way. Again, it's people, you know, are, you know, time, time poor, right? So they, they, they act on and use their mobile devices to create their, the need for food and whatever else. I mean, the stories I've heard of some, <laughs> some people delivering what they've had delivered is quite hilarious, but um, it, it, it's there. And I think it's, you can be smart with it. I think if you put the right offer in, um, you can, you can ex- expand your revenue lines quite significantly. Um, but you've, you know, you've got to put the right products in um, and make it relevant. Otherwise, you're, you're just you're barking up the wrong tree. Yeah. Okay. And and then advice to anybody out there, you know, whether it's running a, you know, a QSR or, or a restaurant, as you've said, you've spent a lot of time looking into this. You've got an HST, HSE team behind you. Um, any any advice that you would give to people who are, you know, looking towards the the fourth of July and looking towards reopening? What sort of things do you think? they need to focus on to, to open successfully? Um, clearly the offer, um, the size and scale of it and the complexity behind it with the the knowledge of the team size they can have because um, the, you know, the, the footprint of the building is going to dictate how many staff they can have, including customers. So really focus on that. Um, really communicate to your team, make them feel safe, make them feel um, they understand the, everything that's going on because um, it's nobody likes change right ever it's the biggest thing everyone hates but we're going through a lot of it right now um, and then just focus on providing the product that you think your customers want you know rely on your you know, you, what you know best and, and just be prepared to be agile I guess yeah yeah I think agility is key isn't it we're all, we're all pivoting and learning on the hoof how, how many of your places you know, are you aiming at opening you know everything on the fourth anything on the fourth or are you sort of staggering learning you know opening a few learning a bit uh, and then opening the rest what's the current strategy um we're we're literally slowly slowly so we're opening a few things ga- gauging the market certainly more on the casual element first you know coffee bakery kind of things to to see the interaction from from customers um plans to open the restaurants just because where they're positioned you know um, one in parliament square and one in the, in the square mile 
you know, it doesn't make any sense just to do that really before September based on, you know, current forecasts of, of returning people into the city. But, you know, that's every day we review that. Um, you know, if, if, if things open up well on the 4th of July, we've, we're in a position that we could bring things early if needed to be. But likewise, if not, then we push it back. What we do need to know is we, you know, we've got to know the volumes of people we can get into our business before it becomes viable. Um, so, you know, looking at September for the you know the top end restaurants really. Mm. Yes, it's an interesting difference, I think, isn't it, between being allowed to be open but being you know viably uh, being able to open, uh, and they're, they're yeah. two very different things. Yeah, and again, you know, we've you know the um, even the venues that are opening up. You know, some of the spaces aren't allowed open, so it's only the grounds that are open. So you, again, you you can't really you, you might be able to put you know one of our little last stand coffee trikes somewhere, but outside of that, you can't really do anything else um, until more internal spaces are opened up. But it's it's interesting, as you say, that from a from an events perspective, everything's been postponed. Again, we don't know about the distancing requirements, so you know. How do we tackle events? Because there's still inquiries coming in, which is I think is positive, and it's a really great thing that we're getting inquiries, um, you know, for kind of the the last quarter of the year, um, and stuff. Which for me is a real positive thing that people are open to that suggestion. But again, it's how you cope with those, you know, what used to be an event for 200 people, you know, how how does that look? And we, we're not able to define that until we know more about the social distancing. Yeah, it's tricky, I think, isn't it? You know, hospitality is all about the energy in the room and the buzz and the vibe and the smiles and the eye contact. And uh, it's it's hard to imagine everybody sort of, yeah, you know, separated, standing apart, visors and screens. And uh, I don't know, you'd just, you just stay at home, really, wouldn't you? Oh, well, yeah, because, you know, food and drink is this, it's so social, isn't it? it? It just, you know, it creates conversation, it interacts. It's That's the whole part of it, really, isn't it? So I think, yeah, it's going to be really interesting times ahead. And I think there'll be some there'll be some great lessons to be learned, you know, which will make us all stronger. But I think it's going to be a, a real challenge um, getting there. Yeah. Well, you sound like a half full kind of guy, you know, overall, despite the challenges and, and you know, like we said, this potential tsunami and the sadness, I suppose, of the impact on the industry. Do, do you see some positives coming out of it as well? And are you, are you generally sort of fairly upbeat of at least a bounce back at, at some point, albeit the uh, precise timings of that unknown? Yeah, absolutely. You've got to, right? I mean, it's it's really important that, you know, you've just got to ride the storm and, and keep at the top of it. Um, otherwise, you get sucked into it and you'll just not come out. So I think if you can, as long as you can open your, your brain and, you know, from a thought perspective and, and view things differently and, and be prepared to adapt, um, then why can't you succeed? Um, you know, things will have to change. Then just accept that and just think of the best way you can do it. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah, it's certainly not boring, is it? We're all sort of yeah, on our, kept on our toes and learning fast. Um, look, I'm conscious of time, and and as I knew, um, you know, I, I wanted to uh, talk about a number of topics with you because you've got a superb amount of knowledge. Are there any other burning issues, David, that you you came on really wanting to chat about? No, it's been really great, uh, Mark. Thank you so much for the invite. It's been great to talk to you, and um, yeah, really insightful. Thank you. Good. No, thank you. Thank you so much for, for taking the time out. It's hugely appreciated. And uh, yeah, keep keep in touch. And one day, hopefully, I'll, uh, I'm will i in London on a fairly re- reasonable, uh, frequent basis, or at least I was. So I'll pop in and join you for a beer in a venue. But for now, where should people go? Where's the best place for them to uh, either follow Restaurant Associates or, or perhaps you personally? Is there a particular social channel you use more, David? Um, I'm on uh, Instagram and Twitter. Um, 
But yeah, and then when you come back into London, any of the cultural sites or um, Somerset House, we'll have the summer series on hopefully, potentially, um, or, you know, City Social or Parliament Square. You come along and have something to eat. Yeah, perfect. All right, great. Well, I'll put some links up on the on the show notes with this episode when it goes out as well to your uh, pages. But for now, David, thank you so much. Good luck getting reopened. And uh, yeah, thanks again for sparing my time. Appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. Much appreciated. So did that episode deliver for you? A big thanks again to David for sparing me so much time and patiently allowing me to quiz him on such a broad range of topics. I love to chat to people as informed and experienced as David since they have so many exceptional insights. If you enjoyed the show as much as I did, could you please, please do me a very quick favour? It'll take less than 30 seconds, which is pretty good input from you for the last hour of chat. I hope you will agree. Please, please just pick up the device you are listening on, open up the podcast app you are using and find the bit to leave a review for this show. Click on five stars or even better, leave a few words of encouragement. It really helps the algorithm spread the listenership of the podcast and that really helps me out. Thank you so much. I will be back on Saturday morning with another super lively interview from Andrea from Mercato Metropolitano. And after that, I have a few shows I've patiently been waiting to release from pre-lockdown. More on that next week. Thank you.